Welcome everybody to episode 9 of the Bomber Brothers podcast. Sean and Ryan with you as always here on the Pinstripe Alley community of podcasts. Uh, this week we have Bob Clappish coming on from the New York Times and Bleacher Report to talk to us about the book he co-authored, Inside the Empire, which is a New York Times bestseller and a look inside the Yankees' operations. But before we get there, Sean, uh, it looked like it was going to be another week of celebrating more recent positivity, but the Yankees have since dropped three in a row after winning nine series in a row. And while while I kind of chuckle at the large, large portions of the fan base that are uh, already preparing to burn it down, I, uh, I'm, I'm hoping cooler heads prevail and realize that sometimes losing streaks happen and sometimes guys come in and don't get the job done. That was the case for Britain yesterday. That was a case for some of the guys in the infield yesterday. So I don't know if we're in the minority here, but we believe it or not are, are not ready to throw the season away after three games. No, I'm not worried. It, it stinks. Um, last night's game, probably, probably the worst loss of the season, I would say, um, to this point. I'm probably forgetting something I blocked out, but last night was the worst loss of the year. But like I was saying before we started recording, in a different year, this might feel different. But this year, you just feel like it's a little bit of a speed bump. And I also think just, I mean, they've been playing over their heads. I I think they've been playing better than their Pythagorean uh, formula would tell them they would play. So a little bit of regression was in order. And I also think psychologically something comes off with the Boston series ending, especially when you go to Toronto. And I think you're starting to look ahead to guys coming back with Didi. So I think it was natural to maybe have a little bit of a dip. Unfortunately, it was very painful to watch last night. Um, I'm not worried about Paxton or, or Britain or, or anything. I just think it was it was a blip. Now, obviously, if this becomes a trend, um, you know, the, then that's something to worry about. But um, I'm not going to panic over uh, over lose, losing a game where one Angel Hernandez basically gave the Blue Jays the game. That whole fifth <laughs> inning is totally different if he's not behind the plate. Um, and two, where the bullpen, which has been so reliable and hadn't given up runs from those relievers in, in, in so long, um, has an implosion because that usually doesn't happen. And then obviously the Boston game is the Boston game. And we'll get into that series a little bit, but I'm not overly worried. Um, That's just my feeling though. Well, don't tell that to a large legion of Yankee fans on Twitter. I was, I was, I was amusing myself last night during the game and and seeing some of the replies to uh, like Lindsay Adler and a couple other reporters. And, And one of them said something to the effect of, like what? What nerdy website has this bullpen as the most valuable in the league? It stinks, or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> uh, yeah, the far and away most dominant bullpen in baseball actually sucks because they uh, pitched one bad inning. I guess that's how baseball works. But, but no, exactly. I, I mean, you know, we've seen Britain have some of those implosions last year, and I think you, you know. He's more. He's healthier this year. We've seen how effective he is when he's on top of his game. So now they happen f- fewer and farther between. And last night just happened to be one of them. I mean, no reliever in baseball is perfect. Mariano Rivera blew three saves in a row towards the end of his career, and he also blew a couple of the biggest games in the World Series or 
as your phone is ringing. It's one of the Sorry Twitter fans. That. It's one of the Twitter fans calling in to, uh, to tell us that the season is indeed off the rails. But, you know, it happens. Bullpen implosions happen. And, you know, like you said, there could be some regression given the makeup of the Yankees roster. But they also pushed across seven runs last night. So that that's normally enough to win. Pitching and defense just didn't get it done last night. So now the Yankees are on a, a mini losing streak. Hopefully they correct that tonight as we record on Thursday. But aside from that, I, I don't, I really don't know if there's any level of concern to be had. I, I mean, it looks like Aaron Hicks, he had the night off last night, but it looked like he was hitting Went the ball. Went in for very, defense, so. Yeah. And he was hitting the ball very well on Tuesday. He had a home run and a double. I believe that was, and Sanchez is still mashing. So there, I, I, I don't know. There's, I don't see any reason to be worried other than that. It's just a minor blip on the radar. The '98 Yankees went 12 and 16 during a 28 game stretch. It's, it's not the end of the world. Yeah, you know, like we were saying, like in a different year where it seems like this had been a trend. Even last year, we I, towards second half of last year, if this happens, it's, you know, it feels completely different. Um, but this year it's just, it is what it is. And like I said, uh, with Hap going tonight, God knows what's going to happen there, but, um, <laughs> we got DD coming back on Friday and, um, judge and Stanton back by the end of the month. It's looking like, look, looking like judge wants to go to London baby. And, um, <laughs> yeah, I'm not, I'm not overly concerned. I mean, I'm sorry, but if you lose three straight and you have, you know, Cameron Maven and, and Clint Frazier and, um, you know, in, in, in your lineup and Kendris Morales, well, that's going to happen. I mean, it's, it's, it's not, it's not the end of the world. Yeah. Uh, one of the outcries that I guess I could say I would possibly join the Twitter Legion in is getting Kendris Morales out of the lineup. I'm, I'm not have not been a huge fan of his bat in the lineup. I think oh, he batted great when we were there on Saturday. Yeah, he did. He did. But that was... Uh... I mean, if Chavez was playing attention over there at first base, he would have been gunned out pretty much on all of his hits. But um, uh, he only got on Friday. I mean, everybody's freaking out. But when Didi comes back, he's going to be the move. I mean, you're not going to send anybody else away, right? No, he, no. I, I think... When I think he becomes your backup first baseman, you're good to go. Yeah, I, I I think that's the move as well. But yeah, Friday was funny. It seems like he just laced three line drives right into the teeth of the shift that somehow all got down. A couple times I thought Betts could have still thrown him out at first with the way he runs, but I guess Betts didn't want to take that chance. But anyway, uh, yeah, I, I think once DD comes back, which is just so exciting to think that that's actually really soon. This could be the last game we watch with Didi not in the dugout and in uniform tonight. That is, uh, that's definitely got to be pumped up. I am very excited about that. We all yeah, can I'm, use I'm a pumped more Didi. Didi to come back. Absolutely, I hope he comes back. Has like huge series in Cleveland, and they come back and announce an extension. That would just be wonderful. I just hope he comes back, and it's the April version of Didi last year. That, that'd be sick. I'd love it. Or his weighted runs created plus is about 230 or whatever it was during that month. Something completely absurd. Well, that's just Gary Sanchez for this full season, so. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man, we, I got so excited about Didi, I, I lost my train of thought on what else I was going to say. Oh, you brought up you brought up Judge. Did, were you surprised at all by Boone um, saying that 
they uh, think there's a good chance that they could have Judge for the London series. I mean, usually with how precautious they are about injuries, especially the one that Judge after what happened last year, I thought I was a little surprised that he expressed that kind of optimism. I, I was expecting more of the, oh, we'll have to you know wait and see. We'll see how he's doing. I know he's been hitting in the cage, but I thought that was uh, I thought that was interesting. Not something you see very often when it comes to Aaron Judge injury updates. Yeah, I um, well, I mean, I also think they've been really, really quiet about this for a long time, and now he started to do work, so now they probably have an idea of where he actually is at, so they can give an accurate time frame. So I wasn't too shocked. I mean, just judging by how much work he's doing, you figured that ramp up process is is going on right now. So I wasn't totally taken off guard. Now, were you even less shocked that Troy Tulowitzki has been sent home? No, they told they they said, uh, "Why don't you go take a couple days off?" And uh, it sounded like they were taking him out to the out behind the tent, as they say, and just putting him out of his misery. Why don't you go home and take some time off? Yeah, he was brought over to the family farm, and uh, <laughs> we'll never see him again. Just like our dog Megan. Um, yeah. Um, well, I mean, what's what's worse than having one Ellsbury is having two Ellsburys. So, um, or I guess three. I was about to say, yeah. Yeah. Don't forget um, about Greg Bird. Well, I mean, at least he's played since 2017. Not yeah. well, but, you know, he's played a couple games. Um, yeah, no, I am um, not surprised at all about that. But it sounds like the it sounds like everything's going well. Um, sounds like Batances will be back in a couple weeks. Yeah. And um, it, it, it looks like by by – the end of July will be at 100% if you're not counting Bird and Tulowitzki. So so then we'd be uh, at 60% roughly. Uh, okay. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, not bad. No, not bad at all. I, yeah, I was definitely encouraged by the Batances update. It sounds like he is uh, kind of opening up about how off he felt at the start of spring yeah. and how much better he feels now, which is – obviously great to hear and apparently the Yankees desperately need him because a lot of and, fans think this bullpen sucks so hopefully Batanzas can save it all right well obviously fans are just being ridiculous and <laughs> the bullpen doesn't suck but here's the thing that Batanzas does in a game like last night now you have one more weapon to go to and you don't watch Holder go through that inning and you don't have Britain have to pitch multiple innings because you have another weapon in Batanzas and um you know, that was something that was odd to me was that you had two guys who finished an inning and then started the next in Ottavino, who ran into trouble in his second inning of work, and Britain. So hopefully it was just that they're not used to doing that. They'll get a little bit more used to because Girardi's uh, – Girardi, sorry, Freudian slip there. Uh, <laughs> Boone's been really good with um, starting guys on clean innings and, and stuff like that. Or if they have to finish an inning, not starting them again. We saw that on Saturday night um, when Ottavino got out of the jam. Um, that I believe Green had in his second inning of work. So hopefully they'll get a little more used to that. So I'm not I'm not worried. But like I said, having Batances, you don't have to do that. Then you just have another weapon down there. Yeah, I think the return of Batances is incredibly valuable just for the sake of easing up on some of those arms in the bullpen because they've had to be used a lot given injuries to the rotation, guys not going deep into games with disappointing seasons from Hap. Uh, obviously, Sabathia doesn't give you the length he used to in his earlier in his career so the bullpen's been used a lot so that would uh another 
elite arm there to not only take innings off the other arms, but to be just as effective. That would uh, that would be a huge, huge gain for the Yankees. So definitely very excited for Batances to make his way back. Speaking of elite arms, and we could go to the Boston series after I, I say this, but why, why the hell is Dallas Keuchel not signed yet? I have no idea. I have absolutely no idea. I, I've, it's It's gotten to the point where it it's like... It's like 2017 trade deadline when I just kept checking my phone. Like, why don't why haven't the Yankees added a pitcher yet? Obviously, the they one, got second great. Obviously, <laughs> obviously, the one they added didn't work out. But I think we can all agree that um, that Keuchel would uh, would do a little bit better. I would hope. Um, but yeah, I mean, the first domino has fallen. Kimbrel's off the board. The Cubs sign him. Three years, forty-five million. Why they... the team as rich as the Cubs said that basically the only reason they did this is because Ben Zobris is getting divorced and not with the team. Yeah, honestly, with today's, uh, yeah, I can't believe it. But yeah, but anyway, it, yeah, no, I agree. I, I'm glad you brought that up because we, I would have gone the whole podcast with somehow forgetting to talk about it just because I just woke up a few minutes ago. But yeah, I, I don't know, I don't know how Keiko's not a Yankee yet. I mean, it's it is such an obvious fit. And they've had scouts watching him. Apparently, he's, you know, up to speed with his workouts. I, I don't know. And I mean, it's just it's money. That's all you have to spend is money. If you want to add a pitcher in another way, you're going to have to give up prospects. Which I mean, maybe they're you know. saving that money to try to sign out Lighter's son. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, you want to transition to to Red Sox? Yeah, yeah. So uh, so quick recap of that go ahead no i was just gonna say I, I thought what was awesome about the red sox series even though they dropped the last game was that the first two games really were um a statement of what the yankees dominance is in this division and that was they didn't get great starting pitching which underscored it underscored two things it underscored the need for um the need for keichel because herman can't keep doing this and i mean cc and and hap are you know they're they're serviceable at this point in their career, um, but then it shows you what your what your flex is, and, and going to the bullpen in the fourth inning of one game, and the you know the six what Pat pitched five innings, so they went six, seven, eight, nine with the bullpen the night before, just being able to shut down the Red Sox, and because of that, they're able to beat Chris Sale when they only get five innings from their starting pitcher, and then they're able to play a game where their starter gives up three runs in four and two thirds innings. And then they're they're still able to win that game. And also, let's not like this is just one thing that stood out to me. Like, let's not sleep on how great Gary Sanchez has been because that was those two games, the Friday night and the Saturday night game, were the Gary Sanchez return party for everybody to realize that last year was just a fluke and he was hurt a lot more than everybody realized. And he's good because not only was he throwing guys out, hitting home runs in clutch spots. But he also was blocking a lot of pitches, especially in that night game. And I remember we commented that if he had let one of those balls get through, the Red Sox would have taken the lead um, in that fourth inning. I'll, I'll just say this. If anyone is still sleeping on Gary Sanchez, they need to be woken up with a nuclear bomb like they did with Godzilla in the, in the newest movie because uh, I don't know what else you need to see. Do the, you know, this, we're, we're almost... It's crazy to think, but in a month we'll be approaching the midway point of the season. So you factor that in with the end of his 2016 and then his entire 2017. You have about two full seasons of evidence that he is one of the elite players in the league and is the best catcher in the league. 
and then you have one season of where he was clearly hurt, had a bad year, gets the surgery, and now he's back to what he once was. I, I know I see we seem to do this every week, but it's it's necessary because he just keeps doing unbelievable things at the plate and behind the plate, like you said. I know I know some of his pitch framing numbers have been sacrificed because he's committed more to keeping the ball in front of him and giving his arm it it makes up for it and his bat makes up for it in in an even greater amount. So absolutely I being at the game with you on Saturday and seeing that huge home run from Sanchez after watching that incredibly visually pleasing highlight of him throwing out Nunez, not just the throw but the tag by by uh, Torres as well. That was a it was a great series for him to help uh, help the Yankees uh, win that series, which obviously was was a big win. If they didn't win that series, and and you follow it up with how they've played the last couple days, all of a sudden that gap in the division is much makes you much more uneasy. Right, and that's why I was happy that Boone went for it both games because if you have if you put wins in the bank, then it's easier to to take these kind of losses because you know if you beat the Red Sox two or three, um, and then lose two out of three to the Blue Jays, or you know hopefully not get swept tonight, but you know, it's it's a little bit easier to stomach than if you had lost two of three to the Red Sox. So yeah, absolutely. And, and going to the final game of that series, real quick, what'd you think of CC Sabathia coming back from the IL? He he made two mistakes, one to Bogarts, one to Martinez. Other than that, he was very very good. He struck out eight guys. I mean, that's a season high, and that's also coming off his previous start before he hit the IL when he struck out seven guys, which was a season high up to that point. So. Seems like he's getting more swings and misses. Uh, you know, those two blips aside to two of the better hitters in the league right now, I thought he looked really good. Absolutely. I, I mean, CC is is what CC is. You know, he's he's going to have those starts where he might lose it a little bit, and 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 that that soft contact that he always gets will find holes and stuff like that. But I mean, he's he's missing bats. He's usually getting a lot of soft contact. And I mean, let's be honest, it, we're, we have a totally different tone when we talk about this game if there's a different player out in right field. Um, inst- instead of being a game where, okay, the Red Sox got in front and then we could never catch up, it becomes a game where we came back um, because CC kept them in the game kind of thing. And, and that, unfortunately, isn't what happened. I was more surprised that... And it's every time Price pitches well against the Yankees, like ESPN or Fox or TBS has to make it out to be like the, you know, the miracle on ice. The most incredible right? redemption story. <laughs> Which is awesome, but yeah. uh, yeah, it is what it is. Yeah, well, you mentioned Frazier and, and the Red Sox, uh, and that's a lot of stuff that we talked to Bob Clappish about when we discussed his book, Inside the Empire, which is a deep dive into how the Yankees organization as a whole runs from everything from player development to finances to the relentless positivity of Aaron Boone. We talked to Bob about all of it, so let's go ahead and play that right now. Here is Bob Clappish, co-author of Inside the Empire. Okay, we're joined now by Bob Clappish. He is a baseball writer for the New York Times and now also for Bleacher Report and also the co-author of the New York Times best-selling book Inside the Empire, a great detailed look behind the scenes of the Yankees' operations and front office management behind Brian Cashman. Bob, thanks so much for coming on and talking with us. Well, I appreciate you having me on, and I sure do love talking about the book, so thank you. 
Absolutely. And I think one of the things that comes through in the book is Aaron Boone's almost relentless positivity, even when even when you seem to try to pry him a little bit to get some of that emotion out of him, especially when the Yankees were trying to chase the Red Sox last year. Um, and, and, you know, now fast forward to the present day, based on what you've learned, how do you think Boone would handle a situation like what happened with Clint Frazier the other night, not speaking to the media? How do you think he handles those things internally behind the scenes when there are no media around? Well, I think you already got a head start on the answer. I mean, uh, you know, Aaron Boone is a very affirming guy. He's a very positive person. He certainly will not do any, will not discipline or question a player on the record or in front of the TV cameras or with the beat reporters. He, I guarantee you, he has already spoken to Clint and gently reminded him that, you know, there's a certain protocol, especially in New York, that you're expected to speak to the press after a game, especially after a bad game. And you don't have to, you don't have to tell your life story. You don't have to bear your soul, but you basically have to, you have to be accountable and you're expected to at least say, look, hey, I messed up and I'm going to do my best to make sure it never happens again. And that's a very, it's a pretty simple exercise and it makes your life a lot less complicated if you do it as opposed to hiding from the press, which only deepens the mystery and and turns it into a two day story instead of one. And I, I, I guarantee you that Aaron has spoken to Clint to tell him it was a bad day. We know it ever happens to everybody. Don't worry about it. Just go out there, talk to the press for 30 seconds, and it's over, and we have faith in you. And it's that kind of interaction which goes on over and over in that clubhouse between Boone and the rest of this team that makes him such an effective manager uh, because he's really easy to like and he's very relatable. So it's good that you brought up this Fraser anecdote because this Aunt Fraser episode because that's I, I'm almost ninety nine percent ninety nine point nine percent certain that's how the interaction went between him and Clint. And and another great aspect of this book is the deep dive on the Yankees' process of not just finding international talent, which they've clearly been. Uh, so effective at given their major league roster as it stands right now and and also transitioning those prospects into life in another country you know life skills classes i think you note watching friend, episodes of friends in the book to help you know learn english and, and become more acclimated do you know of any organization in the league with an operation that big or intricate or are the yankees just that far ahead of other teams in baseball well, everybody is now, you know, caught on to the fact that you have to groom these kids, especially the ones who come from other countries, impoverished other countries, and they have to be prepared to come to the big leagues, not just in terms of baseball fundamental skills, but socially and culturally and in terms of, of language acquisition. I mean, everybody has caught on to that, but the Yankees were first, and the Yankees still spend more money than anybody else, and the idea of having this, this mini academy in Tampa... Um, where you basically are learning to speak not only English, but they're teaching these kids how to speak Spanish. I mean, some of these kids, you know, come to the U.S. with only a second or third grade education, so they can't even read and write in their own native tongue. So the Yankees have gone in, all in, uh, turning these ball players. you know, 60 to 70% of them will never get past double A. But the Yankees have made a full commitment to making them good citizens. So when they're their minor league or professional career is over, they can go back home and have a life. I mean, the Yankees, and one other point that we made in the book is that regardless if you get to, you know, you spend a month in a rookie ball or you spend three years at double A or you get all the way to triple A and still fall short and end up getting released, 
you have a guaranteed college education. The Yankees will pay for your tuition if the player so desires. And that, to me, is one of the, is one of the is one thing I never knew. And I said I think it speaks so highly of their enlightenment and their forward thinking. That's certainly admirable, Bob. And one of the things you also take a deep dive into is the financial aspect of the Yankees, whether that's avoiding future taxes by giving up ownership of the stadium to the city, the team's income from the soccer team, the Yes Network. Given all that and the deep dive that you've done, I know it was a talking point this offseason. What are your thoughts on the team's commitment to managing payroll and trying to minimize luxury tax penalties? Well, I, I think the first and foremost, the, the big difference is that Hal Steinbrenner, Steinbrenner is not George Steinbrenner. I mean, they have, you know, obviously a common desire to win, but the, the, the business model has changed dramatically since the 80s and all the way up into the early 2000s. I think Hal realized that the game was changing, the way money was spent by other teams was changing, and, you know, just throwing, you know, just literally oceans of cash into the free agent market. It was no longer a guarantee of success, and it took it took George's passing for how to understand it, and for Brian Cashman to emphasize it that there was a better way to do business in terms of developing talent, and there was certainly a better way of doing business in terms of of not throwing away money, literally throwing away money. I, you know, the question is asked me all the time: Would George have adopted this business plan the way that the Yankees operate now had he lived longer? And, you know, part of me thinks that he was starting to have an awakening, starting to have an epiphany that he really did waste a lot of cash and a lot of money um, that ended up not returning much on the dividend as a dividend. So I do think that today that the Yankees pay a great deal of attention uh, towards um, reducing costs where, where they can. Look, there's, you know, the team is now owned by, by the offspring. By, there are several siblings now that Hal has to answer to. So he can't spend the money totally on his own. He has to make sure there's a profit for his his two sisters and his brother. And also the other thing that the Yankees do so well that they didn't, you know, 30 years ago is now they have, as you mentioned, other streams of income, you know, the Legends Hospitality, uh, they have a 20% stake in NYCFC, the soccer team, um, and at the S Network, which is a cash cow. So they are a much more complex organization than they used to be, and they're much more intelligently run. Absolutely, and, and you know they still go out and get that big fish sometimes. Whether it be last off season with the, with Stanton trade, and you mentioned his unproductive at bats last year. Speaking of John Carlos Stanton, um, what are you expecting from him when he returns this season? Given that he does now have a, a year of playing in New York and adjusting under his belt. Well, there's two answers to that question. I would have given you a different answer. I think in March uh, before he got injured, I think he understood coming to spring training. Finally, what it means to play in New York and how every game is uh, is like a mini playoff game. Look, this is somebody who never played a meaningful contest in Miami after maybe April 30th. Uh, and I think he was a little overwhelmed by the scrutiny and how seriously the fans take the games, regular season games. You know, you go over five or four strikeouts and you're going to hear it. So, I, you know, it happens to every superstar that comes to New York. Every out-of-towner ends up experiencing culture shock, and I think that's what happened to Stan. And especially in the playoffs, I just don't think he was emotionally ready for this this, this enormous pressure uh, that came to every game. It came with every game, every at-bat, you know, every pitch. Um, and I think it affected him. I think he was going to be better prepared for it coming into the season. But then he got injured, you know, and it's been a long, long time. Here we are in June, and he's barely played – so physically, I don't know what he's got. You know, we're going to have to watch him for the first, you know, 20, 
20 to 30 days out of the box and see that there are no lingering after effects. But, you know, the original question, how is he going to handle it? I think, I think emotionally he's going to be in a better place, as is the case with most players who come to New York in year two. Right. And, and you talk about the loose demeanor the Yankees had after that, that game to win in the division series up at Fenway last year. Do you consider that a negative for critical games almost being too loose? I mean, it seemed that the teams of the late Tory era carried an attitude of a little overly seriousness, but in, in the later years, they couldn't get out of the first round. So is, is there like a balance that you think is ideal? It's funny, the Yankees really thought all along that they were a, a great team who just didn't happen to have all their, you know, their pieces. You know, they were out there missing Judge for two months. And I don't know if they really understood how, how good the Red Sox were. I mean, certainly it was an awakening for them in August when they went up to Fenway, got swept. But even then, they were telling themselves, well, we didn't have Judge. You know, we'll put Aaron Judge back in this lineup and, you know, we're fine. So going to game three of the, of the division series, they had just won a game up in Fenway. They got game three at home with Severino on the, um, going on on the hill, taking the ball. And I don't think it occurred to the Yankees that, that it was possible that they'd lose, or certainly they had no clue that they were going to end up losing 16-1. to 1. I think that was the, the rudest possible awakening to the reality that it really was Boston's year. It was not the Yankees' year. And that finally hit home after, you know, during very early in Game 3. So after Game 2, yeah, they were loose, they were confident, but they had every reason to feel that way. You know, they'd even the series, they were going home, they had their ace on the mound, they had Judge. Uh, you know, nobody had any idea that Game 3 was coming. I mean, it really hit them like a ton of bricks. So now, fast forward to this year when the Yankees seem to be handling the Red Sox at least early on, and this is all without Judge in the lineup. What do you, what do you see from this year's team as opposed to last? It's it's interesting. They're they're striking out at the same rate as last year. Their home runs per fly ball are actually just about the same. But despite a slew of injuries, they're they're in first place. Just what have you seen as as the biggest difference between what's going on this year and what they were able to do last year? Well, they've got some surprise contributions. I mean, you know, no, nobody thought that Gio Urshela would be such a, a such a tremendous and gifted fill-in for Andujar. And I don't think even in his wildest dreams, Brian Cashman thought that DJ LeMahieu would be this good or that uh, Herman would, would fill in so well, uh, practically turn into the ace when Severino went down. I mean, Cashman has guessed right on every personnel move so far it's, it's an unbelievable winning streak he's in, almost like the Yankees themselves. They've won nine straight series. So I just think that, you know, there's so many parts that are clicking. The Yankees now believe in themselves. But last year when they lost Judge, you could almost feel the difference in the clubhouse that, you know, some, that some critical, that it, that it had been a critical setback. And people were wondering, how are we going to get by? Now, Stanton actually played his best baseball when Judge was out. But otherwise, it was just not the same team. This year, without Judge and Stanton, there's an entirely different attitude, partially driven by by these surprise replacements, as I told you, as I mentioned. But it's just the sense that this may be our year. I'm hearing it more and more that there's a special group. And the other part that's helping, obviously, is the regression regression of the Red Sox themselves. I think the Red Sox came into spring training with a World Series hangover. They just were not as crisp, they're not as sharp, they were not as energetic. And I don't think Alex Cora was prepared for that. And ever since, they just haven't been the same. And that's really helped the Yankees surge to the top. So my feeling is, you know, the Yankees continue to win series. And 
at some point in a season like that, opposing teams or the rest of the league start to think, man, it's their year. You know, we're going to go into the, to the, to the Bronx. We're going to go into the Yankee Stadium. And we might be able to take a game from them in this series. But unless the Yankees really get cold, unless something really happens on a big U-turn for them, they're probably going to take this series. And it's happening over and over again. They're finding ways to take series. And, you know, look, I know it's, it's bar- we're barely into June, but I am getting the sense that there's something very special about this club. And, and you mentioned how that was kind of the sense around the Red Sox last year, which was part of the reason why the Yankees couldn't accomplish their overall goal, and, and also that the Yankees weren't hitting with as much variety and, and more just brawn uh, last year, in addition to an ineffective rotation in, the, in that Boston series. Do you, think, do you think stringing together rallies, you know, station to station, playing a little small ball, do you think that's tougher in the playoffs when you face more just aces like Sales, Coles, and Verlanders, and do you think that's where the Yankees' power ability can start to show its value? It, it seems like it's harder to string together a series of hits against arms like that, and at times that power could become a, a benefit. Uh, that's a great question. You know, I mean, you can answer the affirmative, you know, to either either side of the equation. You know, um, I get your point. But there, you can just as easily say that you know the big swingers, the guys who are swinging for the planets, are more prone to striking out against ace pitching, against elite pitching. And you're better off trying to just put the ball in play. Look, I think Brian Cashman knew exactly what he was doing when he signed a contact guy like LeMayhew. I mean, and he has really made a difference in it to the Yankees this year. And there's just a greater emphasis now on contact hitting. Maybe because Judge and Stanton are not playing and you just don't see as many strikeouts. Um, but I do think that if you're scratching, you know, scrambling for one or two runs and you know you're going to be in a low-scoring game with a Berlander or against Sale when he's at his best, uh, you have a better chance of doing damage playing for one run or two than waiting for the three-run homer. And I think the Yankees realized that they just struck out way too much last year against the Red Sox. The Red Sox were just better at two-strike hitting. It's something that they worked on at spring training and helped them throughout the season. We're talking with Bob Clappish, the co-author of Inside the Empire, and, and Bob, you mentioned that one of the biggest driving forces behind the book was uh, Brian Cashman's availability and, and peering into the mind of one of the great general managers in baseball. Just, you know, what are your overall thoughts on Cashman adjusting to, you know, whatever it seems like the Yankees need, going from, you know, ramping up the analytic staff on the team and then you mentioned signing LeMahieu realizing they needed a contact guy just you know is that is that unique among baseball to have a general manager who is so willing to kind of get out of his own way and and go after what seems to be working for other teams around the league well I mean I've I've thought from the beginning from the get-go that I that Brian Cashman was an unheralded genius and I, I don't use that word lightly but he's, been, he's not had a losing season in 20 years now. This is his 21st year. And the premise of this book really was to sort of pull the curtain back and see how he's been able to accomplish this. A, how, many, how, he's, how you can string together that many winning seasons in any market, let alone New York. And B, not get fired. I mean, everybody in New York gets fired sooner or later. Everybody gets trashed, run out of town. You know, it happened to Torrey. It happened to Girardi. Uh, and Cashman has been able to survive all that. And I said to Brian, you know, back in January when the book was about to be launched, I said, Brian, you have been overshadowed by everybody 
in your two decades here. You've been overshadowed by George Steinbrenner, by Joe Torre, by Derek Jeter, by Alex Rodriguez. Nobody has told your story, really, not not honestly and not in depth. And you know, it took some it took some you know arm twisting to get him to say yes because this book couldn't have happened without him giving his approval and and without him giving me unique access. He finally got it. He finally said, "Okay, you're right. I, I would like to see this book written." But he made me promise that I give credit to everybody around him: the scouting department, the analytics department, Gene Afterman, his assistant general manager, uh, Gene Michael. You know, he passed away, but Brian Sabian, going all the way back. He made sure that everyone was recognized for their contributions in building up this very intelligent organization. But ultimately, this is about Brian, and this is about his imprint that he's put on this team, and how he's a different general manager now in the last 10 years than in the first 10 years, which those first 10 years were all about dealing with George and getting out of the way of George's tantrums and not knowing when to pick your fights with George and when to stand down. Brian was a, a master at that. He handled George better than any of his predecessors, which is why he didn't get fired. And then ultimately when George passed away, Brian was then able to enact the vision he had for the Yankees and how a team like the Yankees should be run and how they should spend their money. So in that sense, I think he is the best and most effective general manager in baseball. All right, there you have it. And, and Inside the Empire gives plenty of great insight into Brian Cashman and how exactly the Yankees are run. It really is a great read, and everyone can go get a copy now. And that's Bob Clappish, co-author of the book, and you can also catch his work on the New York Times and now Bleacher Report. Bob, thank you so much for coming on. Really interesting stuff. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. I really enjoyed this. appreciate it. Okay, huge thanks to Bob Clappish again. I, I recommend Inside the Empire to anyone who hasn't read it yet. It's a bestseller for a reason. It's a really interesting, detailed look into how the Yankees' operation runs. You know, of course, they've been so guarded. But also, what we talked about at first and what was Bob's uh, premier article as a writer for Bleacher Report was Clint Frazier shrugging off his concussion symptoms and, and becoming a productive player for the Yankees which is more so at the plate than in the field. You mentioned it before we play the interview. Yes, thank <laughs> you. mentioned it before we play the interview that the defense has been suspect and probably the worst in the league based on any fan graphs metric you want to look up. So, you know, what do you make of the whole Frazier situation, not just his play in the field, but his clear frustration when um, talking about it or not talking about it? Um. <laughs> It's a multi-layered question, but I, I mean, Frazier's defense is not great. I mean, people were calling up to WFAN yesterday and blaming it on like his concussions and and whatnot. And obviously, I don't, I can't speak to that. And if that's the case, that that's sad. Um, but uh, he is out there working every day, like he says he is. I mean, we see the videos because we're we're so into judges rehab, but Frazier's working light, right alongside him out in right field, um, trying to get better. So for that, obviously, he should be commended. But um, there's just some things that can't happen, and like overrunning a ball like that in right field, that's that's unacceptable. Um, I I don't know. I mean, when I was the the thing that surprised me when we talked to Katie last week was that she was saying that really his offense has heavily outweighed his defense. Now, 
obviously that was that before was before, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and one game's not going to change all that. But just like as a fan watching, um, one of the things that jumps that I don't think is that his bat is that valuable that you can live with that happening once a week or, or whatever it is. But the numbers say otherwise, so I'll trust the numbers. Um, as far as his attitude and, and not talking to the press goes, that that doesn't sit right with me. When Cespedes did that after the, the one-game playoff with the Mets, when he just like bailed on the reporters after he had that terrible, terrible game. Oh, against Bumgarner, um, right? Yeah, I, I thought that was really screwed up, and I think this is messed up too. I mean, I know like the, the common thing on Twitter is, oh, he's a kid, blah, 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 but I mean, he went through media training. He understands what it means to be a teammate. He has judged their setting example for him, like – whether you have a great game or a bad game, just stand up in front of your locker. You, you know, you don't have to give them much time, but just, you know, say like, you know, you know, you should have made those plays, blah, blah, blah. Like just be an adult about it and you're allowed to make a mistake. So if you come back, don't come back like on the offensive like you did. Um, he, he's got fair points. The problem is it's just not the time or the place. Like the issue is that you ducked your teammate, you, you ducked the reporters and left your teammates there to answer for you. Um after you had a bad game, it's not if the media treats you fairly or unfairly. Now, obviously, the thing with the Mickey Mantle number and, and the hair and all the other stuff, yeah, that that happened. That's not your fault. But, you know, just when you do something wrong, you can't bring up all the things that people did wrong to you in the past that doesn't make it better. Just just own it. Yeah, I mean, um, definitely wasn't the best of looks, but, you know, I, I think I can also just – I'm also willing to chalk it up to a young kid making one of his first mistakes in terms of, you know, something that's part of the job. And he is uh, probably going through the most frustrating on-field adversity of his major league career and just, you know, in, in the heat of the moment, didn't handle it the right way. So hopefully it's a learning experience. I, I really don't mind the honesty that followed that he was talking about his frustrations with some of the way he was perceived with the number and everything like that but again it, it just didn't come off as the right timing given that he had just come back from uh refusing to talk after making all those mistakes in the outfield and when you do that then your your teammates have to answer those questions which is probably something that they don't want to do but you know again Boone is is great at managing a clubhouse everyone seems to say so I'm sure it's like like Bob said I'm sure it's already been addressed and I'm sure everything is is uh is fine that's the the thing though if if it was addressed then why does he come out two days later still pissing and moaning i don't know because he's he's mad at himself he's frustrated he wants to succeed (laughs) you're taking it out on the media (laughs) yeah because i don't know he's he's a he's a kid he's uh, hopefully he's just hopefully this is just a learning experience that doesn't happen anymore because you know it'll get to a point where you can't just chalk it up to being a, a frustrated inexperienced kid anymore in terms of the field, I, I mean, I think, you know, there were three notable plays in that inning. There was him diving when he clearly shouldn't have dove, which has happened a lot this year, uh, letting the ball get past him. And then the in-between one where there was a shallow fly ball and LeMahieu had to make a journey out to right field to make that catch. And I think that was more telling than the other ones. It, it just seems like he's very timid on coming in on fly balls now because he's had so many instances where he dove where he probably shouldn't have. So, you know, now you have your infielders having to make up ground to get to those balls. And, uh, 
Yeah, I think it's in it's probably it has to be in his head. It clearly is. He's expressing frustration all over the place. So you know, it's, you hope it's something he gets over. Like you said, he's putting in the work. So hopefully that pays off. I, I mean, Andahar put in plenty of work too. His work ethic was definitely not something you could knock last year. But he also just didn't get much better defensively as a result. So. Maybe this is something that needs an entire offseason to fix. I don't know, but I, I think we can all agree that we're just ready to have Aaron Judge back in the lineup and in right field. Not only would he negate a lot of the mistakes Frazier has made out there, but he would also be a huge positive since people forget Judge's great defensive ability in right field. So we're definitely ready to have Judge back. I couldn't agree more. And just when Judge and Stanton come back, Frazier will be one of these guys that goes down to the minors and actually works on his defense. It's not a salary ploy. He really needs to to get better there. And I, Go out and get Keuchel. You don't need to trade Frazier. Just get his defense better. And then next year he can replace Gardner as your fourth outfielder, I would assume. But um, still a lot, of, a lot of time to see that. And Gardner's been not too bad this year. Had a big hit last night, even though they lost. But anyway... All right, so uh, I, I would assume we have the same thing we're looking forward to this week. I'd be disappointed if, if we didn't. But, Didi? Uh, yes, Didi. We're uh, super excited to have Didi back in the lineup, in the field, in the dugout. Just can't wait to have him back in uniform and and hopefully raking like he did last year and the year before and just keeps improving. It seems like he's doing just fine in his rehab assignments, so... I uh, can't wait to have D.D. back, and I guess that's what we're both looking forward to this week. Absolutely. Um, got D.D. back. I have tickets to the Monday game of the Subway Series, as I mentioned, so I'll be um, get, I'll be there for D.D.'s first home game back. I'm pumped up. Nice. Well, I'm very jealous, but also very excited to watch him and hope everyone else is and hope everyone stays calm amid this very minor blip in the radar and no one loses their minds. Hopefully the Yankees avoid the sweep tonight and uh, hopefully we're back with some more good news to talk about next week. So thanks to Bob Klappish. Thanks to everyone for listening and we'll see everybody next week. See you later, everybody.